could open your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11. And we do have this wonderful opportunity to begin the new year of 2012 on a Sunday morning. And I don't know of a better way that we could start the new year than to be right here in God's house worshiping him. This is a good start. And if you have made any New Year's resolutions, then surely I would hope that the one that's at the top of your list is that you will do a better job of serving the Lord in the year of 2012. That this year will be a a greater year of dedication to God's work. And we're really looking forward to the many blessings that God has for our church in this year. Now, I'd like you to look, if you would, please, in chapter 11 of Matthew. We're going to begin reading today in verse number 25. If you'd stand with me, please, as we read God's Word. And when we're finished reading this, keep your Bibles open because we have quite a bit more Scripture that we're going to look at today that we want to read together. So don't put your Bibles away. Uh, Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 25. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father, Neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light." Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word, and we thank you, Lord, for each one gathered here today. Open up our hearts to this message. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. I thought about what I should preach on this Sunday morning, and in years past I have uh, chosen a text from Scripture that deals would deal specifically with the new year. And most often those kinds of texts have something to do with resolving ourselves to commit ourselves to greater service of the Lord, to more holiness in our lives in the new year. One of the uh, popular texts for a new year sermon is in the Old Testament book of Exodus chapter 12. And there the Bible describes the beginning of the new year for Israel. The month that Israel left Egypt was to be marked off as the beginning of the Jewish calendar, and it was during that month that the people of Israel would celebrate Passover. On the 10th day of the month, they would take a lamb, and they would inspect that lamb. They would put it up. They would choose the very best from their flocks. This was to be a lamb that was the best of their animals, and they would keep that lamb up for four days to examine it, to make sure that there was no defect in it. And then on the 14th day of the month, the beginning of the year in the Jewish calendar, they would sacrifice that lamb, and then they would celebrate Passover. And so the Jewish year began with a celebration of the deliverance from bondage in Egypt, and that Passover lamb, of course, was emblematic of Jesus, who is the Lamb of God that would one day come and then end the bondage of sin forever. So how could they have begun the new year in a better way than that? Just really thinking about how that they belonged to God, they were reminded they are God's people, and it was by God's mercy and his grace that they were led to their freedom. 
And so Exodus chapter 12 is really a great passage to, to look into and to study at the beginning of the new year. But I've really been looking forward myself to preaching this message to you today. Uh, sometimes on Sundays, I don't know what it is, but I, on Saturday nights, I have, a, I have sometimes weird dreams. And dreams that just sort of throw me off so that I wake up and I, I don't even realize sometimes it's Sunday morning and I have to get myself reoriented to what I'm going to do and I just have these weird dreams that come. Just things that have nothing to do with what we're going to do on Sunday. But this was a particular time as I think about this sermon that I was really looking forward to getting into the pulpit and just saying what God would have me to say, reading from this passage of Scripture and trying to explain to you what God has in his word for us. Now, this is really a great passage. I think it's a good text for us to begin this year with. Uh, The entire gospel of Matthew is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promise that God would send a Savior into the world. Matthew chapter 1 begins with that, or has that great uh, uh, verse in it, chapter 1, verse number 21, that describes how that Mary was going to have a baby. An angel appeared to Joseph and told him this, and she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And so Jesus came, and that promise was fulfilled. And this gospel account is the, is the story of Jesus' life, of his death, and of his resurrection. And according to Scripture, that is the means by which we are saved. And the entire Bible is written to get us to this point that we understand what God has done to make salvation possible for a world of guilty sinners. Now, in our text here today, Jesus issues an invitation for sinners. He invites people to come to him for salvation. He tells them that there is rest for their weary souls. If they will come to him and they will learn from him, they will receive rest. Next week, we're going to talk a little bit more about what that word rest means. But if there's anything that we really need for this coming year, it's to rededicate ourselves to this invitation that Jesus gives, and that is to reach people with the gospel. We need to be busier than we've been before. We need to be busier than we were in the last year. We have a responsibility to reach people with the gospel. People can't be saved without it. And God has put this church here for that purpose. So every year is to be a greater year of reaching people for the Lord. And so our New Year's resolution, I think, this year should be that we'll do a better job of living our faith and of telling our faith to others. Now, as we come here to the end of this 11th chapter in Matthew, we find Jesus giving that compelling invitation. And the invitation is truly remarkable in the context because we've just finished up a section in which Jesus rebuked the cities of Galilee, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, and he gave them this horrifying promise that they were going to be judged without mercy. In fact, we discussed that in the previous messages, that judgment upon those cities, and it would be very severe. These were cities in which Jesus did many of his mighty miracles. People could see him. They could hear him. They had the opportunity to to believe in him. And the scripture tells us or shows us here that their condemnation would be more severe than for people that never heard the gospel of Christ. And that's because with greater revelation comes greater responsibility. 
And I say that this passage is remarkable in its context because after Jesus announces that severe judgment that would come upon those cities, he then turns and invites them to come to him in belief, to come to him for salvation. Now, it's always right for God to do what he wills with the sinner. At this point, what God could have done, he could have shut it all down. He could have done nothing for these people. But here we find that God is gracious to draw these very same mocking, apathetic, unbelieving sinners to him for salvation. Now, what we have in these scriptures is really a very perplexing problem. This... Uh, this theology, uh, the theology of this passage is the subject of nearly 2,000 years of debate. This is a meeting place of one of the most difficult problems that theologians have sought to resolve because here we find in these verses the electing grace of God meeting with the human responsibility to accept the open invitation of salvation. Now, verses 25 through 27 are actually about sovereign election. Now, we're going to talk about that in this part of the message, and, and that might leave some people with the argument, well, what can I do? What can I do? If I'm not one of God's elect, then I cannot come to Christ. And that's the objection that's laid at the feet of the doctrine of election. And so we have verses 28 through 30 that counterbalance that. We have an invitation to come to Christ. And all that a person ever needs to concern himself with is how will he respond to that invitation. Both election and human responsibility are taught in this passage, and we can't ignore one to try to explain the other. Uh, we can't take one in favor, uh, favor one of these and leave the other out. Both of these are taught, and if we can never reconcile this with our finite mind, it does not change the fact that both of these have their place in Scripture. Now, I just wanted to add that note because if you don't like this part of the message, just remember there's more to come. There's more to come in next week, and I'm happy to include the invitation that Jesus offers to every single person without exception. Now, we're going to examine Scripture today, and I promise I'm not going to say anything that is merely my opinion, but we're going to look at this from the Word of God. So let's begin here with verses 25 through 27. That's what we're going to talk about today. And so first in your outline is the pleasure of the sovereign. The pleasure of the sovereign. Jesus says in verse 25, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in thy sight. Now, we notice there that Jesus prays to his Father, and he acknowledges that the salvation of any sinner is according to the good pleasure of God. It's God that has the right to give salvation. So there's no one that can say, I deserve to be saved. God must save me. It's not fair if God doesn't save me. Or it's unjust that God would save one person and not save another. The scriptures teach us that God has the right to do with his creatures whatever he decides to do. Now, I'd like you to turn, if you would, to the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, chapter 18. And here we find God illustrating this principle by comparing himself to a potter. 
A potter takes a lump of clay and he makes that into any kind of vessel that he chooses. He may decide to make a cup or a sauce or a platter or a pot, whatever it might be, but the potter is the one who decides what kind of vessel that he's going to make. Now, we look in Jeremiah 18, beginning in verse number 1. It says, The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause thee to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he wrought a work on the wheels. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter, so that he made it again another vessel, as seemed good to the potter to make it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter, saith the Lord? Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye in my hand, O house of Israel." Now, there is a demonstration that God is sovereign. God is the potter and we are the clay. And just as a lump of clay has no say about what it will be made into, so every person is helpless in the hands of God. God is the one who orders. God is the one who creates. God is the one who fashions. So we are not masters of our fate. We do not have control of our destiny. It is the sovereign God who plans and purposes what we will be. Now, if you'll turn back a few pages more to the book of Isaiah, chapter 64, and Isaiah is just before Jeremiah, here we find Isaiah pleading with God over the sins of Israel. And he writes this beginning with verse number 6. This is Isaiah 64, beginning in verse 6. But we are all as an unclean thing, And all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And there is none that calleth upon thy name that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee. For thou hast hid thy face from us, and hast consumed us because of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, thou art our Father, we are the clay, and thou art potter, and we are the work of thy hand. Now there you see that Isaiah surrenders himself to the sovereignty of God. He cannot demand God's mercy. All that he can do is plead for God to do something for him. And he very clearly states here that there is no one that stirs up himself to take hold of God. And so if any man, any person makes a movement towards God, it's because God has already directed that movement. Now, the very same illustration is also given to us in the New Testament in the book of Romans chapter 9. The apostle Paul speaks of the potter also in Romans chapter 9. Now, there are some people that look at this and they say, well, what you've been reading is from the Old Testament. And what, that, what you have there is that God's electing grace has only to do with national Israel. But here we find in Romans chapter 9 that Paul is speaking to both Jews and Gentiles and he gives the very same illustration of the potter. So he writes in Romans 9 beginning in verse 20, Nay, but O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another to dishonor? And there you see that the scriptures agree perfectly with Jesus' statement in Matthew 11. That if salvation comes to a sinner, it comes at the sovereign pleasure of God. 
Now let's look at that just a little bit more closely today and let's see what Jesus says about the Father's work in salvation. Now first he shows us that God is self-revealed. God is self-revealed. Jesus said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Now, whatever it is that we understand about the saving grace of God, it's only understood because God has revealed it. Now, there are two types of revelation that God gives. One type of revelation is insufficient for our salvation. And then there's another type of revelation that's fully sufficient for salvation because that is the purpose of God giving it. Now, the first of these, the one that is insufficient for salvation is natural revelation. This is the same as the innate understanding of all people that God does exist. In Romans chapter, or rather Psalms chapter 19, the psalmist writes, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Now there the writer is speaking to us about nature, and he says that nature tells us there is a God. In every place, in every culture, to every person, every place upon the earth, everyone is aware of the existence of God. In the history of the world, there's never been found a culture, that, never one that's been discovered that does not believe in God. Now that, that tells us that the atheist is a complete aberration. An atheist is an abnormal spiritual mutation. In the 14th Psalm, the writer says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And why is he a fool? Because he denies what nature is shouting at him. In verse number 3, again, it said, There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. It is evident there is a God. And those who ignore that are ignoring what nature so loudly and clearly tells them. Natural revelation is what Paul had in mind when he wrote Romans chapter 1. There he says in the 20th verse, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So there is no one who has an excuse not to believe in God. Nature has revealed him. And if you look at the complexity of the universe, you look at plants and animals, if you look at the physiology of man, it is simply not rational to deny this intelligent design of our creator God. God has revealed himself. Now those that Jesus was preaching to were not in denial that God exists. They claimed that they were children of the God that exists. But that natural revelation is not sufficient to bring us to salvation. It's not sufficient to show us that there truly is a God or truly is a God that can save us. Now, millions of people around the world, even billions of people, will die and they'll go to hell believing that God exists. The few few fools that have educated themselves beyond their intelligence to say that God does not exist, they're also going to die and go to hell. And that's because natural revelation is never going to lead us to salvation. There's more that's needed. And friends, the more that's needed is what 
Jesus has to say in this passage. This is what he has in mind as he speaks these words. Now, what is it that we need? What kind of revelation that we need do we need to show us that we can have a relationship with God? Well, that's what we call personal revelation. And that's what Jesus is talking about. This is when God is specific about who he is and how we can have a relationship with him. This is when God reveals Christ as the Savior. It's when a person believes this, he repents of his sin, he turns to Jesus Christ for salvation because he has received this very specific personal revelation. Now, you'll notice here by Jesus' statement in verse number 25 that God is the one who reveals that information. He is self-revealed. And it's evident that that self-revelation is not given to all people because Jesus says to some, it's hidden. Thou hast hidden these things from the wise and prudent. Now, folks, again, that's proof that salvation comes to us at the pleasure of the sovereign. Now, that leads us to another conclusion, and we need to get it, get it very clearly in our minds, that salvation, or God, is salvation responsible. God is the one who's responsible for this. Personal revelation is given by God, and the understanding of who God, or who Christ is specifically, is God's work. That's God's work to reveal him. The Apostle John addressed that in John chapter 1. He says, he came into his own. That's Jesus. He came into his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. And listen, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. That's God's work. Jesus came to the nation of Israel, and here in Matthew, we find him preaching to them. He had just finished rebuking these cities, and uh, because of the great demonstrations of power that he gave there, they did not believe. And the ones that did believe did so, not because of their will, not because of the will of man, but they believed because it was the will of God. It's his sovereign pleasure to reveal himself, and he alone is responsible to save those that believe. Now, the Apostle Paul says this in another way in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. There he says, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, listen, because they are spiritually discerned. The only way that you'll ever understand the things of the Spirit of God is because God gives you that ability to understand them. And then if you want to capture more understanding of the sovereignty of God and salvation, you just look at the way that Jesus prayed in our text. Verse number 25, he says, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Is there anything outside of heaven and earth? Does anything exist apart from heaven and earth? Well, of course not. So that is a statement that God is in charge of all things. God is in charge of all things. Now, you needn't think, oh, yes, I understand that. God is the one who keeps the the, the earth moving around the sun. God is the one who sends the sunshine and the rain. God is the one who makes the flowers grow. God brings the springtime and the harvest. But when it comes to my salvation... I'm the one in charge. I'm the one that decides whether I'll be saved or not. 
I will come or not come, and that choice is mine, and it's mine alone. And you know why? Because I have free will. Don't you tell me that salvation is about God's choice and not mine. Now, is that what you think? Do you think that God is in control of the vast reaches of the universe, of outer space, and that God deals with those things, but he leaves salvation to your purview? Well, you can think about this again because Jesus says God is Lord of heaven and earth. And that is a statement that God orders all things that comes to pass. Everything in heaven and earth belongs to him. Nothing is outside of that realm. You can't think of anything that lies outside of heaven and earth. Now, what in the world would Jesus be talking about, do you think, here? If he's not talking about salvation, what does he have in his mind? Do you think that Jesus is saying here that because sunshine and rain come, because flowers grow, that this is the thing that Jesus has in mind when he makes this statement? Well, of course not. What is he talking about here? He's talking about our salvation. And he prays to the Father because he knows that the rejection of those unbelieving cities is in God's hands. Now, the fact that they didn't believe didn't upset God's order. These cities were not going to destroy any part of God's plan. Jesus is not saying, well, you know, I came and and I did my best. I, I did all my miracles there. I did the very best that I can do, and they wouldn't believe. So what are we going to do now? And he did all those things in Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. And he, did he throw up his hands and say, well, God, your plan is foiled. You sent me as a savior into the world, but I can't do anything. They won't believe in me. Your plan is destroyed. No, folks, what Jesus is talking about here is an affirmation that the response of salvation belongs to God. He controls all positive and negative responses. And God is not going to surrender his will, his sovereign will, to our will. Now, if there's anything that you ought to be thankful for, you ought to be thankful for the very same thing that Jesus was thankful for. He was thankful that God is in charge. He is Lord of heaven and earth. And if God is not in charge, if God left salvation to us, then the whole human race is doomed to an eternal hell. Here's something you really need to understand about God's election. God's election does not keep anyone out of heaven. God's election allows some people to get into heaven, allows people to get out of hell. Now, all of us are justly deserving of going to hell, and the election of God does not render God unfair or unjust. He is the potter, and we are the clay, and he deals with us according to his pleasure. Listen, even so, Father... For it seemed good in thy sight. Now let's step into that a little bit further. We see that salvation is according to the pleasure of the sovereign. And next I want you to see the position of the sinner. Now this is why that salvation has to be only in God's hands. It's because of the position of the sinner. Now our position is one of darkness in the spiritual world. The Bible compares spiritual awareness to light and being spiritually unaware to darkness. And that means that in our natural condition, we are in darkness, which actually corresponds to the same as unbelief. And here Jesus says that God has hidden the knowledge of Christ and of salvation. And when God reveals Christ, then that's like a light that shines into the darkness. 
Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light to the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now there you see the sovereign work of God in salvation because the Bible says there God commands the light to shine into our hearts. God commands the knowledge of Christ to come to us. Now the light of Christ is shining all around. It was shining in Israel. Jesus was there. But it was only when God opened up people's hearts to believe it that they could see that light. Now, here Jesus shows us something about the sinner. He shows us first that we are ignorant of God's way. People are ignorant of God's way. He says, thou hast hidden these things from the wise and prudent. The wise and the prudent are the same ones who think that they can know God by human intelligence. Wise and prudent is the same as saying intellect and understanding. These are people that think that a relationship with God is possible or is attainable by figuring out who God is and then applying that worldly wisdom to the problem. And this is no different from those that believe that making an intellectual choice is the means of salvation. Now it's evident that an intellectual choice was not enough for the people of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum. Now, if you want to look at it that way, what is it that kept those people from believing? Why didn't they believe in Jesus? They'd seen all of these mighty miracles. They had already admitted that he was unlike anybody they'd ever seen before. So where would their intellectual choice lead them? Where should it have led them? Well, the reasonable thing, of course, would be for them to believe. Isn't that the reasonable thing? I mean, if it's according to intellect, if, it's, if Jesus is appealing to intellect, then he has some of the smartest religious minds that could be found. You go into those synagogues, and there you find these scribes and these Pharisees that were experts at God's word. They'd studied God's word throughout their entire lives. The scribes were responsible for for giving the writing down and, and giving this law. They were experts in the law. The Pharisees were experts at applying God's law. But they were people that trusted in their intellect to tell them everything they needed to know. And then if you want to extend that beyond Israel, look at the Greek response to the gospel. What did they do? Well, they were trying to find God through philosophy. They had their great schools of learning also. But did that get them any closer to God? I'd like you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we'll read here. This is Paul writing to the church at Corinth, and that is a Greek city. And in this chapter, he brings both the wisdom of the Jews and Greeks under review. Now, let's see what he says here in the beginning, beginning at verse 18 in chapter 1. And, And this really does not need a lot of explanation. The Scripture speaks for itself here. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. 
But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greek foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are. Listen, verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Now, folks, there is the reason why that God does not let human wisdom lead anyone to him. If you could be saved by your intellect, then you would have reason to glory in yourself rather than in God. Now, there is a local preacher who made this statement. He said, thank God that you had the good sense to believe. And with that statement, he threw the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1, or 1 Corinthians chapter 1, right out of the window. But you know, that's what a lot of people think. Salvation is an intellectual choice. And so those that have good reasoning are saved and those without it are sunk. Well, is that what God does? Two things ought to be evident here. First, that God does not hide the gospel from smart people. And God does not save only smart people. Well, how does that, how do those statements fit in with its text? If God has hidden the gospel from the wise and prudent, how does that fit? Well, he doesn't hide the gospel from smart people. He hides the gospel from those that think that they're smart enough to figure him out. And if they'll give up trying to find him on their own and admit that they are totally helpless, they can be saved. This is what Jesus meant when he said in Matthew 5, verse 3, in the Beatitudes, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And poor in spirit means that they understand they're spiritually bankrupt. They don't have anything to to offer God. They don't have anything in them that would give them an edge on someone else. They're totally helpless. And this is far from... Thank God you had the good sense to believe. This is thank God you were saved because you have no sense at all. When it comes to spiritual things, you have no sense at all. Don't talk about your good sense. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You have no spiritual sense, and that's because you live after the old nature. You live after this old nature that always leads you away from God. Your nature is never going to lead you to God. The sinful nature always leads us away from God. We're, uh, we're ignorant of God's ways. And it is in that spiritual condition that God plucked you out of the mire of sin that you were content to slop around in. And he gave you the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So if you don't realize your spiritual bankruptcy and you trust your good sense to cause you to believe, if you think that's what's going to make you believe what's right, you're never going to find salvation. Now, folks, that preacher was wrong when he said that. 
But I know this, that there are people in his church that are saved. In spite of his wrong teaching on this, there are people in his church who are saved. You know what that proves? It proves that God's the one who's in control of salvation because God protects us from the ignorant teachings of men. God is in control. Now, you may not understand all the ins and outs of salvation at the very beginning. You may not know all the doctrine that lies behind this, but one thing is for sure. If you got saved, you do know this. You brought nothing to the table. You brought nothing to offer God. You have nothing to offer him, not even your good sense. God saved you from a spiritually bankrupt position. Now, secondly, and we'll finish with this for this part of the message today, we are inept in God's word. We lack understanding of Scripture. Now, what Jesus has in mind here, of course, uh, in these verses are the scribes and Pharisees. They are the wise and the prudent. These are men that knew Scripture. And there are plenty of people that have Bibles and they can read Scripture, but they have no understanding of what the Bible means. The scribes and the Pharisees thought that they were ahead of the game because they had salvation figured out because they knew so much. But look at what Jesus says about this. How does God reveal himself? Is it to the wise and prudent? Is it to the ones who think that they figure God out? No, he speaks of babes here. He says the babes have the gospel revealed to them. Now, he's not talking about physical babies, but rather he's speaking to those that come to him in a childlike faith. Now, if you'll turn over a few pages here to Matthew chapter 18, we can see here how that God says that people must come to him. What does he have in mind when he says babes? Matthew 18, verse number 1. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them and said, Verily I say unto you, Except ye be converted... And become as little children, ye shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus says we must come to him as little children. And what he means is that we have to come with him, to him in the same dependency that a child has. A child is not independent. Children don't figure things out for themselves. They don't say, well, mom, leave me alone. I'll do this by myself. And neither does a person come to God and say, God, leave me alone. I can do this. When I get ready, I'll get it all figured out. And when I'm ready to call on you, then I'll come. I'll give you a call, God, when I'm ready. You know, that's a person with a free will position in salvation. You can't come to God in that way. You have, you ha you have to come with him dependence, independence and let him do it all. There's nothing you can do for yourself. You can't understand God's word. You can't understand God's ways. You are totally dependent upon God. If you're going to come to him, it's because God brought you to him. You're dead in trespasses and sin. You don't come by your own free will. We may we discuss free will another time, but that's not how you get to God in salvation. He brings you to himself. The Father draws you. That's what John 6:44 says. God draws you to salvation. Now, I'll put this to you in another way. You have no righteousness and you have no resources. Going back to those verses that we read in Isaiah earlier, Isaiah 64, verse 6, but we are all as an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags and we all do fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Verse number 7, and there is none 
that calleth upon thy name, that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee. What does that mean? That is helplessness. That's what a spiritual baby is like. He cannot stir himself up to take hold of God. He has nothing. He has no righteousness. He has no resources. And folks, this is why God has to take the initiative in salvation. It's why he has to do this. No righteousness and no resources for human beings. Now, this is not a comparison between smart people and dumb people. But this is a comparison between works and grace. You can't get to God if you think that you have something to offer him. If you're going to be saved, you'll be saved by God's grace and God's grace alone. Leave your will out of it and let God do his will. Now, this starts us into this passage. It begins with a statement of God's electing grace in salvation. It is God that is sovereignly in control. The position of a sinner is helplessness. He cannot climb up to God. He can't do anything for God that will help save him. He cannot trust his intellect. And so he bows himself humbly before God, and in utter brokenness, he trusts God to do his saving work in him. Does he worry about his election? Does he say, I can't come to God because I'm not one of God's chosen people? How am I going to figure out if I'm one of God's chosen people? That's what I really need to do before I can come. Well, can you figure out if you're one of God's chosen people? Yes, you can. You can figure it out. How are you going to figure that out? Humble yourself before God. Repent of your sins. Admit that yourself, you cannot save yourself. Repent of those sins. Place your faith in Christ. Trust him and him alone to save you. And if you'll do that... You're one of God's chosen people. That's how you know that you've been chosen by God. Now, you didn't make yourself that way. You didn't make yourself believe because it's God that chose you to salvation. That's what verses 25 through 27 is about. God is Lord of heaven and earth, and friend, that makes him Lord of your salvation. And thank God he's in charge, because if I'm in charge, I mess everything up. I'll mess salvation up, and so will you, if you're in charge of it by yourself. So you didn't make yourself believe. God draws you. God has elected you to that salvation. So remember this, folks, as we close our message today. God is God all year long. He's God today. And he'll be God next week when we come back and talk about the next part of this in verses uh, 29 and 30. He's still going to be God. Or 28 through 30. He's still going to be God. He'll, He'll still be the one who saves people. He's still in charge. And what does he do? Just what Jesus does. He invites every person to come to him. Every person without exception. He opens his arms to you today and he gives you an invitation and he says... You can come, you can believe, you can be saved. I will save you right now. And you don't worry about, am I chosen? Should I, should I, should I not make this decision? Should I come, should I not come? Am I really chosen? I can't come, I'm not chosen. No, God says, come, just come, believe me. And that's when you know you're one of God's chosen people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word We thank you for such profound truths that we find here. 
And we can't reconcile all of this in our own minds. We don't know how that before the foundation of the world that you chose us to salvation. We don't understand how you did that. And then at the same time, you tell us that we must come, that we have responsibility to believe, and we are condemned if we don't believe. Maybe we'll never be able to recognize, uh, reconcile that in our own minds. And I don't pretend that we can, but we believe what your word says, and we trust what your word says. You say that if we believe, we will be saved. And so I pray, Lord, that for any person here who heard this message today and is struggling with this issue of whether to believe, not to believe, whether they are, can be saved, every person here can be saved by trusting in you. And I pray, Lord, you'd open everyone's heart to that truth. Bless us as we sing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.